Welcome to Being Human. This week, I'm delighted to say we have Professor Ruthann Atchley from the University of South Florida, and you're a professor of psychology and a cognitive and clinical neuroscientist. That's correct. Awesome. So the reason that uh, I'm speaking to you now is that your paper, Creativity in the Wild, Improving mm -hmm. Creative Reasoning Through Immersion in Natural Settings, was mm -hmm. cited by a previous guest who's the managing director of a marketing agency here in England. Uh, and she's oh, written very a very popular book called Super Engaged, which has been shortlisted here for Business Book of the Year. And their company have won many awards for best places to work and so on. But um, one of the things that they do is they regularly get people outside. They take them out to the mm -hmm. Alps in France, uh, where the CEO has a place. So, uh, And I've always had an intuition that this was an important part of, of being creative. Mm -hmm. So to, to find your paper was really interesting to me. And perhaps we could okay. start with the, the, the setup of the study and um, mm -hmm. what you found in summary, and then maybe we can dive into it. Yes, no, I'd be happy to. So the research that we did was actually in collaboration with Outward Bank organization work um, to bring young people who grew up in an inner city environment into nature. And they also bring adults out into nature all over the U.S., from Canada or from um, Alaska to uh, Colorado, the East Coast of the United States, and so forth. And so we had them take um, individuals out into nature, and we asked them to disengage from their cell phones and other kinds of electronics while they were out in nature. And we looked at their verbal creativity, both just prior to leaving on the trip, and then we measured them again about four days into the backpacking or canoeing trip where they had been spending time immersed in nature. And what we found was a full 50% increase in verbal creativity in individuals once they had spent that time in nature. Now, we know that um, we can replicate that. We have since replicated or reproduced that finding, um, even looking at as short a period of time as an hour in nature can have an impact on verbal creativity. And and what, does that, what does that curve look like? Like if four <laughs> days gets you to 50% improvement, what does an hour get you? I would, love, I would love to know. I know that an hour gets you about eh, reliably 10 to 12%, at least hmm. in the sample that we looked at. Um, but the important thing is, just like you would do with good research, looking at the effect of, say, a medication on some kind of cognitive or other kind of ability you might be interested in, we haven't done that kind of really careful mapping to see, in effect, what the dose to response is. We don't know. But we do have, again, reliably found, and others have replicated this since, have shown the same effect, that um, there is a positive effect, particularly we find on verbal creativity after spending time in natural environment. Interestingly, and this also may affect your business partners, we've um, been interested in other kinds of things like 
uh, empathy and sensitivity to emotion, and we've seen effects of the, on those kinds of functions as well. So it probably is, nature's good for more than just creativity. Right, and I think from what I understood of the study is that you, <laughs> you're not quite able at the moment to tease out to what extent it's the exposure to nature versus just the removal of the, of the technology. What's That's it? exactly right. true. And, and in fact, so we did this research really just to sort of test a very broad principle. Right. And that was that um, our kind of constant engagement with media and the fact that we are trading technology and nature. Right. We know that, for example, average adult spends eight to ten, maybe more hours a day interacting with some kind of electronic device or other kinds of media. We also know that people are spending less and less time in nature. We know that, for example, the average teenager is now spending something like 15 minutes a day in natural environments. So we were really interested in that interplay. Um, and we did the work knowing that we hadn't really nailed down with the precision that scientists usually do exactly what the factor was. But we wanted to sort of start a conversation in among scientists to ask this question more broadly. And, I, and we, have, we have had a lot of folks following up on this research and trying to pursue the more fine-grained details of exactly what's going on. So, yes, you're right. We know that both the release from engagement with technology as well as the subsequent sort of intentional engagement with nature they probably play off each other and both contribute to the effectiveness of, um, of this intervention of getting away and, and getting out to natural setting. Right. And your, your sense that the problem with the technology, because of course you go hiking and using all kinds of technology. I mean, a map you could argue that is a tool or a piece of technology to hiking. True enough. But it's the fact that this electronic technology is grabbing our attention. That's the problem. Um, yeah, to dig down, it, we believe it relates to the attention system that really is what's going on here. So um, the electronics, we know um, engaging with your cell phone and, and iPads and all the rest absolutely sort of demand the resources and, and utilization of structures in the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And we, myself, the other authors on this paper and others, researchers who've been engaging with us have work using functional imaging and other kinds of technologies to show, you know, how engaging with these um, media sorts of devices demand prefrontal cortex resources. There's also a whole line of research started by uh, a married couple named the Kaplans and um, following on their, their early work that shows that those same structures and that those same attention system seem to be sort of restored and they have sort of a chance to kind of regain, recalibrate, so to speak, when you spend time in natural environments. So again, there was that intentional sort of 
trade-off of tech, tech and media versus a natural environment. So that's, that was the intentional kind of goal of that piece of research, was to trade those off. And because we know that the average adult is engaged with media for such a high period of time over the course of a day, we knew that spending time away from that would be a reduction in engagement with media and technology, regardless sort of, of how much, right? Whether it's somebody's a heavy user or a light user, spending zero time with technology as they were required to do on those hikes um, would, would be a significant change. Right, and did you have any sense of how long the effects lasted? Did you do any mm. testing after the hike? We, we have um, f done follow-up work. So um, we've done some pilot, so smaller sample kinds of research. And we found that um, after about, when we tested again after 24 hours, um, the uh, creativity effect returned to more or less baseline. So hmm. it's not like you get a boost and it stays up for days or weeks. And that would be expected, right? Context really drives a lot of what's going on necessarily, if you think about how these brain processes much, must work. But kind of going back to the idea that um, uh, uh, a manager, for example, might embed some time in nature during the course of the day, and particularly at that time in nature, the person was asked to give up their engagement with their you know, media and devices should have a benefit. And that was why the follow-up work um, that we did um, was really critical because we were able to show that it wasn't, you didn't have to be out there for four days. You really could be out there for a shorter period of time and still see a benefit. Right. Right. Okay. And because I'm just thinking about people listening to this, trying to work yes. out, okay, and, and myself even, what what's practical? Because it sounds mm -hmm. to me like if I say, okay, well, if I go hiking on the on the weekend for two days, let's just say that gives me 25 percent of, of of my performance <laughs> uptick. I know you, right. you, I know you can't say that, but and uh, but then that's that's wiped out by uh, the end of Monday. So I'm, I'm back to I'm back to square one. So if it's about doing something during the day, uh, I guess the other question there is, you know, how long how long do we need of exposure to get something, and then how much exposure? Like, does a is a park enough, uh, or you know, what what do we mean by nature? And that's an excellent question as well. And one of the things that we haven't done, but others have, is to try to drill down into specifically what is it about nature that's really having that beneficial effect. So the original work by Kaplan, he talked about something called soft fascination. So, and I love that phrase, soft fascination. Um, and the idea with soft fascination was that um, he talked about it being both sort of a positive environment, so something that is pleasing to you, aesthetically it provides you with a sense of peace, but they're also, and, he, and this was something that um, other colleagues that uh, we've worked with at the University of Utah have followed up on, there, there also has to be an engaging characteristic to the nature. So 
Um, and, and, and I think the important thing there is that that's probably very specific to the individual, right? So if you find um, uh, a particular environment disconcerting, and in fact, it was funny, when we published this work, we received so many letters from people who read it. And some of them were um, sort of pretty critical and said, if I had to be backpacking for four days, I would be so afraid of bears and bugs and I wouldn't want to be out in <laughs> that kind of space for that long. It would make me feel terrible. I would be a very bad foreman. And, you know, no doubt that's probably true. If it's a threatening environment, you're doing exactly what we don't want you to be doing, which is um, activating those threat responses, which are exactly what we're trying to turn on. So I think to answer your question of what is the right kind of nature, I really do think that's probably specific to the individual. And it really kind of relates to what is it, what kind of environment will activate that sense of soft fascination. And to define that a little bit further, I think the key element is that it engages your attentional system. But I'd like to say that it sort of politely asks for attention, as opposed to the kinds of threat signals that, quite honestly, technology often utilizes to capture or grab attention. Mm -hmm. And I think that distinction is really critical. And in fact, um, I know that a number of folks have, following up on our work, have asked questions like, for example, if you have somebody who's used to an inner city environment, is a part the right kind of nature? versus we were trying to replicate part of our problem is our colleague in the university of utah who um is has been our collaborator dave strayer on all of this work he tries to replicate what we find um <laughs> in um kansas or with our with our with our subjects from um outward bound among college students in utah and he has the hardest time <laughs> getting enough nature to have an effect. So, because we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a, a population of folks who are out on the ski slopes or hiking the trails. I mean, literally their campus backs up on a hiking and biking trail that, that students routinely use on a daily basis. So I think there really is a kind of individualistic kind of nature to well, what so are you suggesting is. that those students I've become so habituated to that environment that it's no longer sort of softly fascinating. Is it something I, like that? I think it's either that or that they're sort of, you know, if you think of again as a sort of dose response issue, it's somebody who's, you know, at the sort of maximum dose of nature and we just can't bump them up by introducing more nature in, into their mm. life. And, and so that, alone is not a strong enough um, sort of trigger. But, you know, I had an interesting conversation with somebody who had also been interested in this research and, and they were saying, well, I run every day, but, and so I'm out in nature. But when I took my headset off, when I started running after reading your, your research, and started paying attention to the environment around me, then I noticed a change in, you know, sort of my breathing rate, my heart rate, my sensitivity to what was going on around me. 
then I think I found the restorative effect. So that comes back again to that sort of trade-off. A lot of times, as you say, you may go hiking, but you've got your GPS and you've got, you know, you're re listening to a podcast on your headset and you're going along. And the truth is you might as well be sitting in your living room for the amount of benefit you're likely getting at that point because you're not allowing the nature to capture or politely ask for your attention and then getting that sort of restorative effect. Right. So it's, it's, it's about who you're being in nature or, or what you're uh, being yeah. in nature. It, well put, well put. I think there really is a lot about that. And, um, you know, people talk a lot in the creativity literature about a state we call flow. And this is the idea that, you know, you really have to be truly engaged in what you're doing and you have to be giving it your full attention. And that's when you get sort of this real jump in creative output. So I think there's, and in fact, we have a chapter that's going to be coming out in a, a book on attention that talks about the specific brain structures that are important for different kinds of processing like flow. And we're making a speculation that it really is activating um, really those areas that are kind of require a very kind of intentional amount of attention in order to see the benefit. So. Right. And, but I can also see as you're speaking there, I'm also I've got a, a past as a computer programmer, but the the tech angle on this, which is there's nothing softly fascinating about the big red bell or no. all of these apps. Okay, exactly. You, you can you can actually see from software design perspective how this could be highly relevant in terms of oh, changing absolutely, the, absolutely the whole way well, we envisage the these experiences. Absolutely. In fact, what we talk about is that technology often t intentionally activates our threat responses right? That is this kind of the counter example to the prefrontal cortex. And, and there we're talking about sort of structures in the brain we call the limbic system. And they are really out there to sort of pick up on these um, very salient, very um, sudden, distracting kinds of information, and then quickly, quickly um, make a judgment between whether or not it's something that is potentially a, a source of threat or not. In fact, that's why I got involved in this research. I've been studying the threat response and specific brain regions important for that in regards to things like depression and anxiety. So that's why I ended up doing this line of research with my colleagues who were, you know, interested in the effect of tech on the brain. So that was, that was the interesting kind of piece that comes together. Right. And the other thing that comes to mind is we had another psychologist on the show, uh, a guy called mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Ba Baumeister, and he um, <laughs> he's done a lot of work around will willpower. Yeah, and he says that one of the problems with so they understand that willpower is like a store. You know, we we have so mm -hmm. much energy that we can apply to willpower, but it depletes over time. But one yeah. of the weaknesses for us as humans is we don't actually have any indication to know when our reserves are low. So yes. So, so that's where this idea of pre-commitment comes in. So we try and set up our lives so that we're, we're not um, so much at the effect of the vagaries of our current store of willpower. 
So I wonder if there's something similar here. If we've got a similar problem yep. in the sense that we've got no sense of these these processes being hijacked and our creativities at a low ebb, but we, we don't have any bodily indicators. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. In fact, it really, I, I'm I'm um, familiar with Dr. Baumuster's work, and and I think that there's a strong relationship between willpower and um, these. Um, what we call default network or, or these particular kinds of prefrontal cortex um, functions. And, and just as um, various ways we spend our time deplete willpower, they likewise probably, you know, in a, in a kind of almost in a hand to hand, hand in hand fashion, also deplete our creativity and I would include in that also our sensitivity to things like um, social cues and our ability to engage in empathy and these other kinds of things that we know are sort of um, carried out by the brain, the same structures in the brain. So it's a it's an interesting um, kind of point you bring up because we don't know when we don't have enough attentional resources. You know, a, a, an obvious one, people who are driving distracted, which is the line of work that the other Dr. Ashley and, and Dr. The degree to which you're on the cell phone and driving, but we know that you are at, you know, four times the risk of getting in an accident, and we know exactly what kinds of cues you're going to miss in the environment, but you have no idea that you are a danger while you're driving distracted. And it's, it, we have no signals for that. And it, it's, it's interesting to me that we've not evolved those signals. I mean, that's a, perhaps another discussion, but it. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. And, and, you know, maybe because it was more important for us to stay alive to evolve. <laughs> all of these sort of threat responses and the other was sort of a, you know a bit of a luxury in a way <laughs> but who knows <laughs> right right but but it, but then it suggests to me that the, this idea of pre-commitment again comes into play because if we say we're, we're not going to get any signals to know that our attentional attentional resources are depleted we can assume that they are going to be given most of our modern lifestyles so pre-commit to some time in nature or some time a sort of tech free window in the day or whatever it might be that it seems to suggest that we should take a similar approach i agree i agree completely and and as i tell people i mean you know you wouldn't sit around eating nothing but donuts donuts all day right but if you think about our utilization of tech and media and cell phones and all the rest we are eating donuts all day long I mean, we really are. We are so um, kind of all consumed with a particular way of utilizing our brain. And that's really what drove a lot of this research, particularly, again, for Dr. Paul actually and Dr. Dave Strayer, because they're asking questions of, you know, does that lead to a state of addiction? Does that lead to other kinds of deficits and problems? To what degree is that causing you know deaths on the road so these are the kinds of things that they were interested in in trying to understand can we replenish those resources 
can we see a positive benefit? Because for years, people have been saying you're using your devices too much. What we were trying to do is change that conversation and say, okay, what could you do instead that might have a positive effect on your cognition, on your mood, on your daily life, on your well-being? And so that was sort of part of the motivation in doing this research was to give people an alternative. Right. And, and so the other thought that also comes to mind is then for those who just simply don't even have a park nearby, right? Mm -hmm. um, if, if this soft fascination state could be achieved by anything other than nature, is that, do you have any indications that there's something that's analogous as an experience? Yeah, there's actually some, um, there's some interesting work that suggests that um, art may provide a similar sort of soft fascination. Um, in fact, um, we, uh, I'm aware of a couple different projects that have been looking at how particularly, again, asking this question, how do you disconnect from technology but engage with something else? They, people who have been doing research looking at attentional resources following spending time at a gallery, for example, but not using technology. And there's definitely evidence to suggest that your memory for art, um, your memory for what you saw, how that day went, also your memory for how you interacted with others around you, so that social memory, are all improved if you're really attending to the environment you're in as opposed to attending to the device that you're carrying at your side. Um, so there is a fair bit of work that have gone in that direction. There also is a lot of work that wants to suggest that you can sort of simulate the effects of nature by watching video or, or looking at images of natural environments. Now, I'll tell you honestly, my colleague Dave Strayer has tried to replicate or reproduce those findings with some difficulty. Um, mm. And so I think what I would say about that is that I think that the bang for your buck, as you say, is probably lower if you're not, you know, really utilizing. But again, what is softly fascinating to you, right? And I think if you could walk outside and truly pay attention to, you know, the way that the leaves are broke, the wind is blowing through leaves in a tree. If you really attended to that, you might, you might see a benefit if you could sort of truly focus on that kind of information and that kind of stimulus for a period of time. Mm. So I don't, I, you know, I haven't studied that. I haven't done some kind of tree meditation study, but you know, I, I have studied meditation and I know that, you know, that kind of intentional, attentional focus has all kinds of positive benefit physiologically as well as cognitively. So, so because you do see in some offices now um, meditation rooms mm -hmm. where you can, you know, maybe there are a picture on the wall or there's a, there's a, there's one guy I know who I interviewed actually has these sort of, um, these particular images that guide your eye towards a single point in the center mm -hmm. of, the, of the picture. Um, so it could be that, and for some people may feel that that 
maybe a a weird thing to do right to go sit in a room and stare at <laughs> stare at a picture for an hour but it sounds like if in the absence of an easy opportunity to an art gallery or to nature then yep. uh yeah that could could have some benefit oh absolutely I, again i i think it's and that's why we have never really wanted to play down the degree to which we think there's this trade-off between both what you're doing in the natural environment and what you're not doing, specifically engaging with media technology, these distracting sort of devices that require that we shift attention moment to moment to moment, right? I think, in, in, and there's a lot of great research on the positive benefits, um, really getting all the way down to sort of anatomical imaging kinds of data that show specific increases in structures like the hypothalamus, who, when, when you've been engaging with um, meditation. So we're not looking at something that's probably drastically different as far as the mechanism that we're talking about with this immersion in nature work and those kinds of research studies that have studied the positive benefit of meditation. And, and as I say, you know, in my own lab, we have looked at how meditation and mindfulness as interventions that really kind of ask you to be more intentionally focused on sort of what, where your attention is and sort of take back control, so to speak, of your own attention system and focus it on something that's um, kind of bringing you peace as opposed to bringing you stress is <laughs> probably the big, the big, you know, a big part of what's mechanistically going on here. Right. Uh, Andy, have you landed on any routine uh, yourself <laughs> that, that, that you feel um, replenishes your attentional resources? Oh, that's a great question. Yes. And, um, and I use it as an excuse all the time to explain why I'm often at the beach. So <laughs> um, when um, we were doing this research, we actually lived on 26 acres of land in the middle of Kansas. And so my husband and I would pretty much religiously spend about 45 minutes every evening just sitting outside and watching the wind blow through the trees mm. and making note of how the you know, environment was changing over the seasons. We have since moved to the beautiful Tampa, and I found that um, staring at a, the waves at the beach, are, everybody's good. <laughs> but even if I can't get out to the beach, I, I um, we are up and out really every morning for at least a half hour for a walk. And um, my husband's less good. He puts his headphones on and listens to music, but I never do. I'm always sort of out watching how you know the environment is changing around me and trying to be very mindful about that you know and, and in fact um with that work we did that looked at the effects of a benefit of 45 minutes to an hour i think part of it was we were requiring people to we were utilizing a kind of mindfulness protocol and asking people to pay attention to their natural environment around them right attention to the shape of the leaves of things. So we, um, yeah, we had a, I think I utilize this, I have to, because <laughs> the rest of my day is very busy and there's lots and lots of bings and boops and going off and, and 
alerts and issues and things to pay attention to. So, yes, I try to get out as many days of the week as I possibly can. Right. Okay. And then on the on the T minus side of this equation, then uh, is there sure. anything you do? Which obviously to, to eliminate the tech. Is there anything you do there that um, maybe our listeners might benefit from? Yes, I never use my phone in the car. It turns out <laughs> you don't have to be on the phone in the car <laughs> ever. I have never used my phone in the car. So the truth is, even though I'm driving some god awful freeways, um, you know that folks who who are used to you know getting in the car sitting down and picking up the phone and making phone calls and trying to do business um they recover a really excellent period of time in their day when they they don't allow themselves to use their phone at all while driving um because not only is it a safety issue but you know the folks who tell me oh but i get bored i have a long drive it's a long straight road and so forth and so on i say excellent that's a perfect time to be mindful right so not only are you safer but you're actually going to replenish some replenish potentially some resources if in fact you have a boring drive now the truth is nobody's drive is that boring and they really should be attending to the road but you know that's a great time to recover um, some time away from technology. And I'll tell you, um, uh, Dr. Strayer and the other doctor actually have done a lot of research on this. Companies who inst institute a true cell phone ban actually, on average, find that their productivity of their employers employees go up. So it is not detrimental to your success <laughs> if you're not on the phone while you're driving. But the other side of it is, I think there's a lot to be said and there's research that shows that, you know, spending time socially is also really good. So sit down and have dinner with somebody and don't watch TV. That can be really helpful. Have a conversation. Um, because though that kind of attention to your loved one, your family members, attending to their face, their tone of voice, truly listening, that is probably restorative as well. It's a kind of meditation because it's truly a focused attention on something that is hopefully for you softly fascinating <laughs> because, you know, they're mildly aesthetically pleasing and, you know, they're engaging your attention in a positive way. So I think you, there's lots of ways to bring this kind of soft fascination back into your life without you know, becoming some kind of monk <laughs> sitting in some Zen garden somewhere for eight hours a day. You can, you can bring it back. Right. I was interested to pick up there. You said there are institutions that have banned cell phones. Is that? Oh, absolutely. As in, There's well, as in companies, companies that have done that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Many companies, big companies. Um, and I wish I could plug a few of them. I know that uh, my husband works, for example, with Johnson & Johnson a fair bit, and, and there's a number of others that are just not coming to my mind. But the point is, yes, many, many, many companies um, have come to realize um, the degree to which they're putting their employees at danger and others when um, they're allowing them to utilize their phone in the car while they're driving. Oh, just in the car. Just in the car. Yeah. I was thinking that would be super radical to say no, 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 no. At all. Well, but there are certainly companies that are looking towards things like having limited hours where they allow email to 
flow and and those kinds of things i think are similarly sort of designed you know designed to allow for focused attention and i applaud all those kinds of activities because i think again the problem is that we're used to you know beating up our attention system by requiring it to shift from task to task to task all the time and that's just not good for it and and folks who say oh well my son or daughter has been using devices their whole life and they have they're able to task switch and dual task the truth is the research shows no they are not and in fact not only are they not any better able to focusing and so i mean there's uh, some great research out of harvard for example that's shown that many years ago and been replicated in m multiple ways so you know practice does not make you better at shifting attention there's lots of research that shows that not unless you're like a very very special person and, and those are rare rare individuals for most of us it makes us worse and so yeah focus pay attention preferably to a pretty tree or a beach but if you can't do that <laughs> focus on something <laughs> preferably mildly pleasing and that just sort of politely asks for your attention <laughs> very good well maybe that's the message to, <laughs> to end it on i love it very good yeah, no that's, this has been excellent and uh i've certainly got a lot from it I, and i'm already good. thinking about because because we had a, a another guest who was very came at it from a slightly different perspective but but he has turned off all notifications on his phone and on, on, on yeah. his computer and all the rest of it and now i'm thinking okay well i want to go a step further now and and i've done all of that um but to actually have periods where i turn off my cell phone completely yeah, yeah. that would be um, brilliant turn it off and put it in a drawer yeah um, because then you've got, if you can't even see the thing, yes, uh, it's just taking another temptation away. Oh, it is. And the problem is, and this is one of those really sick ironies of the way that our attention system works, going back to the lack of awareness. The problem is it's the same um, structures that would inhibit you from going after that device when you know you shouldn't. Like, for example, when it's sitting in the cup holder in your car that's being utilized to pay attention to the traffic. So the, the irony is that you're like, okay, I shouldn't pick that up, but if you're already depleted, you're less able to do what you sh you, the right thing and right, then that drive, right? Yeah. And that's exactly, I mean, it's this terrible catch 22. So that's why um, we always advise people, just put your car in the trunk. I mean, literally, because even knowing it's in your purse behind the seat, as soon as you can hear it go off, particularly if you're truly engaged in the driving task, you're going to reach back and grab it. I've talked to people who said, I didn't even know I was on the phone. Mm. You know, I had, a, I had a, a friend who said, I was so distracted that I posted to Facebook and didn't know I had done it. Mm until it was proven to her by somebody later going why were you weaving around on the road well i wasn't weaving yes you were you must have been distracted i wasn't distracted well i also got a facebook post from you during that same period so yes you were so i think you really can easily not know how 
distracted you are, how engaged you are with those devices, because that's the nature of the device. It sucks up all those resources. So you really don't attend to how much time you've utilized it. So you have to put it away. I think the idea of putting it away is, is an excellent one. And, and you can do it in a way that's ritualistic, that's you know, restorative to you. It can be a gift to yourself, right? Mm. And I think that's really the way to think of it is not as a kind of, I'm bad, I don't use this, and I use this too much, I've got to sort of restrict myself. I would sort of say, okay, how am I going to use that time instead? You know, I sew. Why do I sew? I sew because I have to be focused. And it gives me a chance to be creative. But I sure as heck can't be on my devices if I'm doing that, right? Because if not, I'll poke myself. (laughs) I believe it's bad. (laughs) So, you know, I have to attend. You have to. And and I think forcing, and for me, when I think about that, it's forcing myself to the point where I might get bored and then have to get creative about what I do to stimulate myself. So I think exactly. to some extent we've lost that tolerance for boredom, haven't we, in our society? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I can almost <laughs> hear as I say this, I, I need to get myself into more positions where I get bored. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, that sort of state is a space where we actually allow particular brain structures to sort of become um, sort of in control of the dominant patterns of processing in the brain. And that is actually a very restorative afraid of and we sort of think of as bad for us. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I think, you know, it is when you get to that space where you're truly not kind of demanding all of the um all the different processes to be working in conjunction with each other and swapping off and so forth and how they're and they're trying to accomplish tasks boredom is probably a pretty darn healthy state um, periodically to enter into hashtag bring back boredom bring back boredom but i think also replace it with spending some time in nature. Well, and I love that idea of the gift because in my workshops now when I'm dealing with groups, I'll say, um, okay, not only do I want you to put your phones off and on silent, I want you to put them in your bags. But I can almost sit, feel myself as the schoolmaster, as I say it, right? Because you're bad if you don't. But that idea of saying, okay, I want us all to give ourselves a gift. Yes. Turning our phones off, of putting them out of sight in our bags. I, I, yeah. I love that framing. Yeah, no, it's exactly how you should think about it because it's a gift that is going to allow you, if our research is valid, and I believe it is, it's not only going to allow you to be more creative, but it's, again, going to allow you to work better with others. We know that it helps you pick up, for example, people who are better able to tell the, the emotional tone of a person's voice. Imagine all the arguments you could avoid if you could pick up <laughs> your friends and family, the tone of their voice, and pick up those subtle cues a little better, right? So there's lots of ways in which you're going to probably find benefit. So why not think of it as a gift? Yeah. I think it's a right way to think. Great. Okay. Um, so I know that the the paper that, that you created, Creativity in the World, that's out there, which I love, yeah. you know, scientific papers that have been made freely available. Kudos for that happening. 
Um, yeah. Is, is there any other resources that, that you might point, point people to? And I'll put a link to that created in, in the world paper. Yes, and, and actually, could, because I've recently changed my occupation, I'm not as good at bringing these things to mind immediately, but I would share those with you. And, okay. um, and, and then we can definitely make them available to your readers. As I said, we've, um, we've got a new book coming out um, that soon, 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 that's published by the American Psychological Association um, that I think should have some interesting readings. But I want to make sure I give good credit to all the folks that are doing research in this area. So if you don't mind, I'd love to bring together a reading list, but it would take me a minute to do that, if you don't mind. That's fine, yeah, we'll, we'll put all that in the description so that- That'll be great, really that'll be great, because I, yeah, I, <laughs> like I say, in the last nine months to a year, my life has changed drastically, so I'm a little bit out of sight, out of mind on some of this stuff. That's why I'm being very bad about retrieving people's names today. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Because as I was, you're, you're moving into it, you're, you're helping your graduates get jobs rather than active research. Right. It? No, exactly. Exactly. Sounds like a loss I... to the research community. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I miss it a bit, but it's at the same time, I'm, I'm helping an excellent university here and I, I really do love this work as well. And you know, in some ways, it may be you can think of it as restorative. I'm I'm getting a chance to think a little bit differently about things, and sometimes taking a new mindset and getting a chance to apply your skills a different way can make you more creative, right? Absolutely. So. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Professor Ruthann. Actually, it's uh, it's yeah. been a pleasure, and uh, have a great well, day. Well, thank you, Richard, and you have a good day also. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye bye. bye, -bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.